0: Good morning, everybody. Like Aaron said earlier, welcome to our church, um, Hiawatha, especially if you're visiting for the first time. We're glad you guys are with us. My name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here, and I hope you guys are having a great summer so far. Uh, June, I was telling someone earlier, June is kind of chill for us here, and probably for most churches, maybe for most people, just in general. Uh, after the 4th of July, we can almost start to ramp up for the fall a little bit and start talking about things that are happening, but in June, there's just not a lot to say. <laughs> there's stuff to say, but... Don't let that stop you if you're new to our church and you're wondering how to connect here. We'd love to meet with you or talk to you more about that, Uh, but at the same time, event-wise and program-wise, a little bit less going on, which is kind of a nice thing uh, here too. But uh, we are right now in a sermon series at the church called Big Questions. Uh, So if you're visiting today, uh, through Labor Day, we're going to be preaching on questions that the church has given us as uh, pastors and elders, leaders, the pastoral staff, basically in leadership of the church, vocational and lay. We call that our overseer elder team. Uh, questions that we've been getting uh, throughout, I think, the past couple of months here or so on uh, theology or Bible or uh, maybe something a little bit more experiential or questions about the church uh, at Hiawatha. Why do you guys do things the way that you do? And all kinds of things. We've gotten a ton, like I mentioned a couple weeks ago, which is great. So thank you for filling out our preaching calendar for us. That was like, we said, that was easy, you know, after a few weeks of getting questions because it just came in uh, so easily. But if you have questions still, uh, don't let that stop you. Yeah, please keep asking us. We'd love to... Um, keep getting them, we'll at least file them away or love to just talk over coffee with you sometime about it. Uh, You can write that on your blue card each week or email bigquestions at hiawathachurch.com. That goes to me and Spencer, the uh, two pastors here, Uh, and uh, we'd love to hear from you. So uh, two weeks ago, we preached on homosexuality, and last week, uh, Spencer preached on Christian friendship, questions surrounding those two things. Uh, That was the broader topic. And then today... We're going to switch gears. Every week will be a huge switching of gears from here on out through Labor Day because these things don't relate necessarily week to week a little bit, uh, but not necessarily topically. Uh, But the question, the broader question is about the Old Testament law. The question is, uh, what Old Testament laws are Christians still under, if any? The exact question we got actually had more to do with why God gave the law in the Old Testament when he did in the biblical storyline, which if you don't know, was to Israel right after the Exodus event when God saved them from slavery in uh, Egypt. And and that's a great part of the issue to address. And I'll come back to that a little later on. So the person that asked that question, I will address that. But uh, I started to actually write this sermon as though that was the main thing. But immediately when you talk about the when, you have to talk about the what and and the why and greater questions as to what, what God is doing at all When he covenants with Israel in the Old Testament and mediates that relationship with them through different kinds of laws. So, like I said, there's not just the when, there's the what, for example, which is complex in and of itself. What is the law? Because there are different types of laws in the Old Testament. There are civil laws that kind of dictated what life would look like for Israel in the Old Testament, uh, communally and corporately. There are ceremonial laws or sacrificial laws that, that dictated what Worship would look like around the temple and with the priesthood and sacrifice and things like that. And then interwoven with all of those is a moral law, like the Ten Commandments, or just moral laws that we more readily might uh, ascribe to or look at and say, well, that's a good thing for us even today as Christians to be sort of uh, under. And to be clear, it's that latter section of, of the law. If you want to divide the law into three parts, I think it's helpful to do that to a degree. Uh, that last section of the law, the moral law or the Ten Commandments, there are more moral laws than the Ten Commandments, but just for an example here and for context, that's the main uh, chunk of it. That's really the big question mark: is is to what degree, going back to our main question, to what degree does the moral law uh, traverse into and kind of uh, continue on into the New Testament era? The other parts of the law, like the sacrificial system, for example, much more clearly find their finish line in Jesus. For example. No church throughout history has ever sacrificed lambs as a part of their worship gatherings. And the reason is uh, because there's just some, some common sense answer to that question but, and that idea. But the, the bigger theological rationale is because the church has always seen Jesus as the end and the fulfillment to the sacrificial system. He is the ultimate lamb was slain so that we wouldn't have to be. His blood, like the Old Testament literal, physical animal lambs, died on a regular daily basis to atone for the sins of Israel, kind of, even though it wasn't really working because it had to keep happening. Jesus comes as the fulfillment of that, the finish line of all that that embodied and foreshadowed, to say, I am the ultimate lamb of God. I think we've been saying about that this morning. If we didn't, we will later on. A lot of the great old hymns call in Bible, because the Bible does, calls Jesus the lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world because he's the ultimate one. He's the final one. And there's no more sacrifice after because there doesn't have to be. His his blood is sufficient to cover all sins, not just once, not just for a day or for a year like those animals were in the Old Testament, but forever because he's the perfect um, Lamb of God. He's human and he's fully God as well. So so all Christians in some way naturally uh, ascribe to this idea that there are certain Old Testament laws that do not continue in the New Testament. It's not just, and this is a great kind of sidebar uh, question we're not going to really address today, although I kind of will in the subtext of what I'm going to say. But if if you're wondering, if someone asks you, you know, why Christians don't keep a lot of what the Old Testament says, one quick, easy answer is because the Bible says not to keep it. Uh, There's there's a storyline here, not just a random list of laws. The Bible's not a random list of laws. God is not actually ultimately saying do this, He's, uh, there are times that laws come into the storyline, but they help tell the story rather than be this kind of timeless do this or else kind of conditional way that he 's covenanting with people i 'll talk more about that later on, but uh, the Bible itself teaches by showing Christ as the end of the law that uh, things do abrogate things do things do end but again that 's so that's an, that's an example of how there 's parts of the law that are more readily accepted as okay. I understand how that comes to an end. I understand we don't do these things that Israel used to because Jesus changes things. He, he tweaks things. He adds things. He, he says things in his ministry like, you heard Moses say this when he gave the law, but I say to you this. And he says something different. And he changes like the food laws, if you know what those are as well, and brings them to an end and all kinds of stuff. And so it, it complicates it, but there are parts of the law that, that we more readily say, okay, I understand that. But the problem is, the, the more foggy part is what about the moral law? What about the moral side of the law, like the Ten Commandments? Why does God want seemingly good things? This is the issue. Why does he want seemingly good things to come to an end? God says, like in the Old Testament, for example, don't commit murder, which is widely seen as a positive thing, right, by Christians and non-Christians alike. But then in the New Testament it says we're no longer under that law. We're no longer under it, but under grace, under what Jesus has We're not mediated by a law like that or other laws like that anymore. We're under grace. Yet, obviously, Christians are not to murder anyone. So what does not under the law mean exactly? How does that dictate life for us now in covenant with God? And how is that different from what happened before Christ in the Old Testament? So the big question to kind of widen out here then is, to what degree did the Old Testament law pass away? And We'll focus again on the moral law. It it, it just takes too much time to talk about. I gave a little bit of a hint to how we understand the sacrificial code and all of that, how it finds its finish line in Jesus and all of that, but we won't talk much more about that today. What the big issue is, and I'm guessing someone asked us this, which is why we're preaching on it today, but maybe maybe, maybe many more of you have wrestled with this as well, and if you aren't yet, maybe you will by the end of this morning. I'll probably raise more questions than answers uh, because it's very complicated, but I want to widen out and ask that broader question. To what degree did the moral Old Testament law pass away when Jesus established a New Testament or a new covenant with us when he comes on the scene 2,000 years ago uh, through his uh, life and death? So uh, to begin, let me uh, say a prayer for us and then we'll begin. God, thank you so much for your grace in the gospel of Christ. Thank you for uh, telling a story in the Bible. Thank you that the, the laws of the Old Testament help tell a beautiful story. Uh, There's a lot of complicated issues here, God, that um, maybe to some degree we're not even meant to fully understand. It's so complicated. But to whatever degree you want us to understand, to whatever degree you reveal these things for us in the Bible, help us to understand and ultimately, topically, pointed uh, to the gospel of Jesus Christ. To see how the cross and what Jesus did for us there uh, undergirds this idea of the law being abrogated in uh, the Son of God when he established the New Testament for us. So thank you for the New Testament. Thank you for how it's new, for why it's had to be new, and for what that means for us gathered Christians here today, Jew, Gentile, and for all of us who who call you Lord. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so what I'm going to do here, these are kind of some other sub-questions. Thanks for putting those up. I completely forgot I had those, Carl. (laughs) Hopefully you're reading those. Kind of some other questions have framed the issue for you today, but what I want to do is uh, boil this down into two perspectives today on this matter when it comes to the moral law. There are more. Uh, some of you I know have a background in dispensationalism. If you, if you don't know what that is, just completely check out. That's fine. I'm not going to talk about that. If you know what it is, though... Uh, some of you do. Uh, I'm not going to talk about that today. It's, it's a newer perspective, about 100 years old or so, a newer perspective that most people have just, and I feel like I'm just dumber every time I read about it because it's just so complicated. But anyway, uh, we're not going to talk about that. So there are other perspectives on this question that would handle it a little bit differently, but I want to talk for context's sake about one very common perspective today that we don't uh, ascribe to for the most part here at Hiawatha, and then the one that we do. They're kind of complementary. This is not One's heresy and one's more orthodox. Uh, they're both uh, biblical. They, they, um, in one, you might come from this first form perspective that we don't really hold at Hiawatha, and it's okay. And I hope to convince you otherwise, but if you, if you have it still when you leave here today, it's fine. We can still be very, very unified around, around a common Christ, a common storyline, because a lot of them, these two camps, a lot of the storyline itself, they, they share common ground with, and you'll see that as we go. But it's common enough... I want you to see uh, what it is. We'll define it, but also why we're not it, and then explain uh, what we are afterwards. So anyway, just to make sure you know uh, where we're headed and why we're doing this because it is a big issue today. One of my big questions actually in seminary was to try to figure this out, which is way too much. I realized about a year in uh, I didn't figure it out, but um, I I got further down the path, I think, by God's grace uh, to be more comfortable with it, and so um, I'll try to weave in some of my story along the way here as we go. Uh, but the, the two camps I'm going to call uh, Covenant, the Covenant's Camp, and the New Covenant Camp. Just for almost lack of better uh, terminology here, uh, if you may have heard these before. Some people in these camps wouldn't call themselves this name. So, you know, if you're well read up on these matters, you might say, well, a New Covenant, and then I might explain it. You might say, that's not really it. I know. I'm just saying for clarity's sake here, um, using those two to distinguish themselves from one another. So, First, explain the the covenant's approach, uh, traditionally a Presbyterian and Reformed approach to the matter. Basically, how they handle the law in the Old Testament is, to, like I talked about before, to divide it into three parts, distinct parts. The civil laws, the sacrificial laws, and the moral laws. And they would say that the first two are fulfilled in Christ, but the third continues on fully into the New Testament era as a gracious means, key phrase there, I'll come back to that, a gracious means by which we work out our salvation and covenant with God by the Spirit's power. So, less distinction between Old and New Testaments because they see what God is kind of beginning to do with Israel by giving them more laws in the Old Testament was a very gracious thing. And so, Christ comes along after that, later in the storyline, and kind of completes it. Gives His Spirit to help us keep it, but it's still a gracious thing for us to, to have on a daily basis, to live out and work out our salvation on a regular basis in covenants with, uh, with him. So, remember, someone asked us here at the church, why did God give the law when he did? Why did it come later in history and not right away? Why did it happen right after God identified a people like Israel to begin to reveal his plan of salvation through? And why right after the Exodus event, which is when he, when he saved them from slavery in Egypt? Uh, this perspective would address the when by saying that God gave the law Uh, to Israel after the Exodus to show them that the law wasn't a means to salvation, but a graciously added gift to what was already done for them. Uh, The moral law, then, being so gracious is something we're, like I said before, something we're still under today with the help of the Holy Spirit. So, I put in parentheses here, here's another gift for you, they would say. So, uh, the Exodus was a gift. I graciously heard your cries uh, as you were desperate for me and for deliverance in Egypt. But here's another gift. I'm going to kind of pile it on here by giving you these Ten Commandments, these other laws to keep in community that will kind of dictate life and, and dictate sacrifice, and especially moral life uh, before, before me. So, the dangers, and I'll come back to this as we go, but the dangers to this perspective, it's not heresy, but just some dangers, that a slippery slope, maybe is a better way to say it, is that this can lead to more of a a law-based or legalistic uh, way that we commune with God, even in this New Testament era on this side of Christ. Or a type of conditionalism uh, in our relationship with God that has, in fact, been done away with. And I'll, like I said, I'll explain that later. But just to have a couple of, you know, there's some dangers there, some slippery slope dangers in mind uh, before we move on. So that's one approach, very common one, actually, that, that I think is probably something that we almost back into when we become Christians because we don't know much about our Bibles yet. We know enough to be saved. But we come across, do not commit adultery and, and do not murder and uh, do not this or that. Do not worship other gods. We think, well, those are good things. So God and God wanted Israel to do them, so he must still want us to, the, to, to do them as well. And the response to that is kind of, as, as I'll try to make a case for here in a minute, is kind of yes and no. <laughs> it's not really, simple, uh, not really a simple, obvious yes. I know it might appear that way, but it's, it's just not. It's more complicated than that. So the other approach that this is Hiawatha's general perspective, and to be clear, very open-handed here. Uh, Even our leadership, um, even an elder here at the church, I could see, you know, I think I speak for all of our elders today, almost 100%. I don't speak for Spence. um, But could come on the team with maybe not all the, you know, boxes checked off here neatly with where we're at with things, and we'd probably want to have a conversation about that, but I think we'd probably be okay with. Because again, this is not heresy and orthodoxy here juxtaposed. It's just different slight perspectives on, the same matter, regardless. If you're here, to, if you're here at Hiawatha, and this is your first Sunday or third or whatever, this is what you'll hear preached uh, from the pulpit pretty much every week, or some whisper of this at least um, about grace law um, juxtapositions. So, the new covenant approach was traditionally a Lutheran approach. Doesn't mean that Lutheran churches do this by any means. It more this is more pertaining to Martin Luther, uh, who read the Bible this way. If you read his commentaries, like. Um, on the Old Testament and New Testament, you'll see this come out in a lot of, a lot of his teachings. And, but traditional, just contextual perspective there, traditionally Lutheran. We're not Lutheran, we're Baptistic, but anyway, there you go. New Covenant. Uh, the, the perspective here is, does not, would say, would not divide the law into three parts like the former perspective, because the Bible never does that, but rather sees the whole law together that you can't really pull apart the whole of the law, including the moral law, is fulfilled or finds its finish line in Jesus Christ. So then the question is, well, how does the moral law lead us to him? What job does it, how does it kind of keep that job? Not by being a great, this is the difference, not by being a gracious thing for Israel or for us who read, but rather a condemning, sin-exposing thing that actually separated people from God or showed that separation from God more and made us look for another solution apart from law, namely uh, God himself. So you can see here, just from some of the terminology used, I hope you can anyway, more distinction between Old and New Covenants than the former perspective we talked about. More, uh, more difference. Unity, overall unity around Jesus Christ, but more uh, distinction. Two Testaments or two covenants with overall unity. The first covenant in its entirety being brought to an end when Jesus dies on the cross for our sins, for, just for the sake of starting something new. So people have said, the early church fathers would say things like, uh, by creating something new, Jesus, by definition, necessarily brought to an end. By fulfilling the old, he necessarily brought it to an end. So it's a common biblical phrase or theological phrase you'll, you might read about or hear, the idea of fulfillment. And so what, is, what does that mean? There's prophecies or predictions, things that point ahead to something else, and then there's the goal of those things. And one of the ways we understand that paradigm is seeing the law as one of those things. Even the moral law is something that has a job to get us over here to Christ, but when it does that, the New Covenant perspective would say, it's jobs done. And so it takes a back seat uh, to uh, the Christ who's now fully on the scene. Regarding then on the bottom here, regarding the Exodus timeline issue, like I talked about before, just to address that, uh, because someone asked that again. Uh, this perspective would say that God gave Israel the law after the exodus, not as a gracious means to be in covenant with him, but to show them and the world they were a microcosm of, that they were enslaved to something else, to sin. So the law then showed us our sin. It showed Like a mirror, it showed us what we, it was a standard we couldn't keep. And so it showed Israel, who had just come out of slavery for 400 years, that, oh, this isn't the end of the story. And actually, it's a really gracious thing, speaking of graciousness, uh, that, that God would do this, that, that Israel would not be fooled into thinking that that first exodus was it, because it wasn't. You know, he's, he's redeeming them from slavery physically, but then right after that covenanting with them, yes, there's a lot of good things the law can give too. It can reveal God's righteousness. It can kind of restrain sin a little bit for a time, but never fully. But really what it serves ultimately as is this mirror of, oh, that's right? I can't not worship other gods. I don't want to keep a Sabbath. Or I, in my heart, at least, if not with my actions, I commit adultery all the time. Uh, or murder, or whatever it is. Uh, it, I, I covet, I want other things. I, I wrestle with envy all the time. It's this constant mirror before us, and God's on the other side of it, that we just can't, at least in our heart, uh, get through. And what that would have screamed to Israel and the world around them is, we need another exodus. Exodus. God's a master at this, you guys. If you're brand new to the Bible, God will do something physically and then right in the tail end of it uh, say something or demonstrate something to say that, well, this is a picture of something that comes later, but it's not the end of the story. Life goes on. Theology goes on. God's way of working in the world goes on all the way until he gets to Christ because Jesus is always God's plan A. That first way of working then was important for sure and from God, for sure, and, and full of power and grace and goodness in that sense, for sure. But because it wasn't the end, it was not this ultimate, ultimately grace-giving thing. It was to expose to expose sin again. There's another Egypt, and you're still in it, and it's way worse than you ever imagined. The law helps tell this story, so it, again, it's good in that regard. But here's the difference with this perspective: it was not life-giving for Israel. It was not ultimately life-giving for Israel, not gracious in that sense of the word. It condemned, like the Apostle Paul says in the New Testament, actually condemned. And with that, it led us to the one who would not condemn, but save, Jesus. And when he came, there is no more need for the law. No longer required to keep. And so just to go back to that former perspective quick, the covenant perspective, certain individuals within that camp would say that Christians are required to keep Old Testament moral law in covenant with God the same way that Israel did. And thats it's problematic for a number of reasons, but one of which is the law in the Old Testament was linked with such conditionality. And I'll come back to this, but God said repeatedly in the Old Testament, do this law and you will live. Don't do these things that I'm asking you not to and you will live. See the conditionality? If you do it, then you will If you don't, you will be cursed. This is a clear way that God set up stipulations between himself and Israel in the Old Testament that was conditional. The problem and insane that that continues, not all of them would, but the problem with even insinuating that it does into the New Testament era is that the New Testament never talks about conditionality. It's all completely unconditionality. There's, there's no such rigid, conditional promises linked with good works in the New Testament. All right, so where do we get this? What I want to do with the rest of the time here is talk about where we get this latter perspective biblically, just a short defense of it, and I'll uh, bring the, weave the gospel into it here as we go and then end with just what does this mean for us. And there's a lot more to say. Again, I realize if you leave with more questions, you're probably not alone. <laughs> but, uh, you know, the short time that we have here together just doesn't, uh, isn't conducive for a full-blown thing here. But hope it's still sufficient to get us, and I, I want to preach this, not just teach it. I want to lead us to Jesus because what I... What I think this latter perspective does is it it undergirds the gospel much more than the former perspective. It gets us to the cross much more on a much more of a beeline kind of way than the and that's really what we're all about. We're about Jesus. We're about His blood. We're about freedom. We're about His love, and all of those are in the cross, not uh, the law, though the law can point to can point to it. All right, so that's the next question. Then where do we get this latter this new covenant? Theology biblically. This idea that the law has passed away in full, including the moral law. The idea that Christians are not under it, but only under Christ. One of the big things, and I have three things here, but maybe the biggest thing you can do as you keep reading yourselves on this matter is to really take notes as you read your Bibles and hear sermons or talk to people about it. Note the strong distinction between the Testaments. So the Bible's made up of an Old and New Testament. Testament means covenant or, you know, way of relating with someone. So a strong distinction between the way God covenants relationally with people in Old and New Testament, seeing the law and grace distinctions. Because when you do that, it's much easier to get to the old is completely gone and the new fully has come and it's, it's left the old in its dust, as opposed to seeing a blending of the two. And so it's not simply then the law, another tick in the timeline of God's saving grace, more of a subplot way of working that's markedly different than the other major ways he works. So, um, so, the first thing is here, I've seen a strong distinction. John 1 says, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. In other words, uh, the law did not come through Jesus Christ, nor does he reconstitute it over the church in the New Testament. You never see kind of Jesus saying, Okay, disciples, let's get back to basics here. Remember the Ten Commandments, let's try harder. I'm gonna give you my spirit this time. This time it's, it's not just on you, it's on me to kind of help you a bit with this. Never, never does that. Uh, Christ rather gives things separate from law, uh, grace and truth. 2 Corinthians 3.6 says, For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Uh, classic way, and this is uh, the Apostle Paul writing, he wrote half the New Testament. He has a lot of strong conjunctions, a lot of these clear uh, buts in the Bible. Just circle those. If you'd like conjunctions, that's kind of a grammar nerd, I know. But just uh, circle those things. So they really tell you a lot about the, the Bible and this matter. The letter of the law kills us, but the Spirit gives life. In other words, just kind of flip the logic around there. The law does not give life. The Old Testament law does not give life. And it's not being separated here into, oh, it's just the two-thirds of the law. All of the law does never did. It never gave life to people. It could never come into our bodies and change that heart of stone into a heart of flesh. We need the Spirit, God to do that completely by his own accord, not uh, not on us. A couple of, three passages here, classic ones in Romans. I wish I could read all of it, uh, but we won't. Preach it someday. But uh, three in Romans here that are classic on this. Uh, Romans 7, 4, right in context to Paul wrestling with this issue, writing to the Roman church. He says, likewise, my brothers... You have also died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. So that the progression that we see here, and this is all in context of, you can kind of get a hint of it here, but in context of Paul using marriage imagery to refer to God's relationship with the church. So there's movement from being enslaved under law, when Jesus comes on the scene, dying to it and being married to Jesus. Is that interesting? Like, so, so it's not we were under law and then now Jesus comes along and gives us more laws. It's not we were under law and Jesus comes along and changes some of them but keeps a third of them over us and gives us help to kind of keep them. It's law to marriage. See the difference? It's, it's law keeping conditionality to now it's actually a completely different way of thinking. It's marriage language, not kind of, you know, bank or conditionality or payment or debt or all of that language. It's, it's, it's different, right? It's love. It's, and this is a great flowing from our Song of Solomon series if you were here for that for the first part of our year. All that imagery is kind of wrapped up here in Romans 7-2. Two verses later, Romans 7-6 says, "...but now we are released from the law, having died," and this is key, slavery language, "...having died to that which held us captive." Exodus language. So that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, not in the old way of the written code. See the clarity here? There's not a blending of the two. There's a one, you know, at the expense of the other. It's impossible to live under the law in the Spirit at the same time, which I think is a really, this verse in particular, is kind of a strike against that more covenantal way of thinking that we started with. You don't see the two blended. You see the one is passing away for a brand new way a new way of the spirit, not in the old way of the written code being the law, in case that wasn't uh, clear. So Jesus then, uh, what he gives us is this third way. It's kind of a a way between paganism and licentiousness and sin-embracingness and uh, law-keeping. So when he comes into the world, you know, both types of people, the religious types and the pagans, both hate him to some degree, but that's another sermon. He's kind of this third way of... Jesus is, is the answer uh, for, for us. His cross, his death, his spilt blood, not law-keeping. He doesn't kind of reconstitute it. He offers a way that's distinct in a way that's different. Romans 10, 5-9, I'm skipping a couple of verses here for uh, time's sake, but for, for Moses writes about the righteousness that's based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. Here's another strong conjunction. But... The righteousness based on faith says confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. See the difference? That The perfection, the righteousness, the purity based on law says do this and you will live. The righteousness based on faith which is markedly different says believe and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. See how they're different? See the, the but there? The conjunction? And how... There's two kinds of righteousness in the Bible. There's doing for a time, for a period. It's always been by faith and trust in God that we're saved, but there's a time that God added law to show that that wasn't the way, to make it very clear to Israel and the world that that actually doesn't work. A New Testament's needed, a new way of working. So conditionally, conditionality versus unconditionality here, just to see that the former covenant had conditions and the latter is just believe. Confess that Jesus is who he says he is. Believe in your heart that God rose him from the dead, that he took your sin away, that makes you righteous. It has nothing to do with law. Isn't that beautiful and weird, and, but just freeing at the same time? Praise God, that's the case. It's not about you and what you do. A couple other passing things here, which I won't read in context, but if you want to write this down, in Galatians 3, and look at it later, um, Paul talks about this, this progression from slave to son. So we were slaves under law, but now we are sons and daughters, adopted into his family at his table. Different, right? Than saying we were slaves, but now we're more mature slaves. Kind of like the other perspective would say, you know, kind of like you're a kid in a home and you, early on in your toddler years and elementary years, you have a hard time keeping your, your parents' rules, but later in life you get a little bit better at them, more mature and all of that, a little bit less about yourself. That's not the progression the Bible makes, between old and, old and new. It's not, I'm maturing, now I'm more able to keep the law. It's different. It's slave to son, slave to being a child of God. Those are different camps. Uh, just in, in the first century, you couldn't, I mean, you weren't both. So it's a mark, kind of like law to marriage. You know, we're going from being a slave to sonship. That, something happened in between those two things that, that changed our status. And it wasn't us. It was God saying, I'm going to die for these people and claim them as my own, adopting them into my family. It's my grace and my blood and my love. It's my dying for them that classifies them as, as such. That's from Galatians 3. Uh, Hebrews 7, again, in context, just a couple of things here. In that passage, uh, the author talks about how in the Old Testament, they were priests, and there was a line of priests uh, genealogically. So you couldn't be a priest if you weren't a leave, a in the tribe of Levi or of the lineage of Aaron. But what he does is he notes that in the Old Testament, but then says, Well, is Jesus a Levite? Is Jesus of the lineage of Aaron? And if you didn't know this, he's not. He's of a different tribe, a tribe of Judah. He's, not, he's, a, he's of David. Uh, he's, he's more of a kingly line than the priestly line. And so basically, he's comparing these things, then he's saying, Because of this, We have a change in the priesthood and a change in, he uses this phrase, a change in the law. He's of this order of Melchizedek, who I'm not going to explain who that was in full today, but he was this priestly-like figure who predated Levi and the Levites and who actually resembled Jesus more than the Old Testament priesthood. So anyway, just understand for today's sake that he's not of the Old Testament priesthood law line. It's not like it starts here and then kind of traverses through history and oh, there's Jesus. Markedly, di- that's all happening up here, but Jesus is back here in a different line kind of saying, I'm the new priest, but I'm not like this one. I'm different. So it's, there's contrast. And, and the point he makes again is because there's been a change in the priesthood, there's a change in the law as well. You can't say that there's a change in the priesthood but not a change in the law. We might think that, but... Biblically, you never see that. And so the theological thing that's pulled from that is there's a change now. And now the the grace that we have in Christ is, there's really no more law. The grace we have, the freedom we have in Christ is this only mediatorial thing now. It's this resurrection. It's this defeat of death. That's the only thing that stands between us and God. And it's a gift. It's not something where, we can't do that, right? It doesn't The cross doesn't scream at us, do this and you will live. The cross screams, look what God has done. Believe and live. Very different. All right, there's way more we could do, but just a sampling. That's the first thing. Strong distinction between the Testaments undergirds this new covenant theology. The the second thing is the absence of any real Old Testament law command in the New Testament. Uh, Graham Goldsworthy says this, it should be noted that the the exhortations in the New Testament call us to conformity with Christ, not with the law of Moses, including the moral law. It's striking that the Ten Commandments are not set forth as the standard of Christian conduct anywhere in the New Testament. Rather, what you see, like he's getting at here, are verses like this. This is the, the uh, if you're especially if you're new to the Bible, uh, the predominant way you see the, the, the church encouraged ethically. Colossians 3.1, in the context of encouraging the church not to sin, it says, if then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. So it's really interesting, and that's kind of nebulous, right? You have to explain that. But basically what he's saying is, think about Christ. Think about the things that are above. Think about the fact that you've been raised from the dead spiritually. Believe it. Apply that to your way of living. That's much more common than seeing uh, do this or do pointing people back to uh, the Ten Commandments, which you actually never see. 1 John 3 is great here as well. It says, it does talk about keeping Christ's commands, it's important for the church, but it says, here's what the commands are. What Jesus commanded us, two things, to believe in him, to believe in the name of his son, and to love. Love one another as he taught us and he first did for, for us. That's it, that's it. It's an amazing and just simple and beautiful What he commands you to do isn't burdensome. He just wants you to believe in what what he's done for you. He loves you. And he says, here's my yoke, and it's light and easy. Just come to me and rest and watch me work for you. And then if anything, just love. Because that's what the whole law was getting at anyway in the Old Testament, was just leading people to love. It couldn't really get people there, but but I am now because I'm better than the law. I'm what the law was pointing to. Love is a reflection of me loving you. Love the brothers, love the sisters in the church, and love your enemies. Love the lost, love the lost world. And third, third here is storyline arguments, uh, and that is, and I'll just give a short thing here. The Bible, be, this is the argument, the Bible begins and ends without law, just God. In Genesis 2 and 3, uh, in the beginning, after God created everything out of nothing, there's no law, just God, his people, a garden, and his grace. The only exception was a lone command to not eat. And this is really important and so weird. Just note this though. Not eat, and he names the tree, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So Genesis 2 says, And the Lord commanded the man, Adam, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. But as maybe many of you know, as the story went on, Satan, kind of principal fallen angel, who led a rebellion against God, tempted Adam and Eve to become like God by reaching for the fruit of this kind of tree and effectively, or so they thought, ending their need for God. So here's the thing. Maybe you've never thought about this before, but reaching for the knowledge of good and evil, reaching for morality, is really what brought sin into the world. is that interesting? Not that that's always wrong in every sense of the word, but here, reaching at the expense of God for the sake of morality, doing good abstaining from evil, knowing the difference between those two things, which they apparently didn't. They just had God in the beginning. They were fine. But reaching for the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is what's what made all hell break loose and cursed all things. Because people claimed to self-deify. Adam first and all of us with them self-deified by thinking, all I need to know is good and evil, right? I can, I can be good on my own. So I'm going to partake of this idea this theology, eat this fruit, and effectively end my need for God. Just what Satan wanted because he had already done that, Uh, rebelled against him, angry at his superiority, covetous of it. So the answer then for Christian, this is actually why Christians believe that we're not just saved from our paganism, but we're saved from our good works as well. We're saved from our false religious moralism. So the answer for Christians is not be good, keep eating from that tree, the answer is Jesus. They are very different, very different. They might sound similar, but they're different. The answer is not be good. The answer is come to the cross and realize that you're not and receive the gift of salvation directly from the hand of God. So one way then to understand, I think, the, why God gave the law later in the story, didn't start that way, remember? God didn't create the world and start piling on laws to people. He was just there. And he was he was sufficient. But later, after sin comes into the world, after all this rebellion happens, I think one reason why God gave it is to but is to give people what they really wanted misguidedly, to show them that it wasn't the answer. God does this a lot in the Bible where he'll you guys know the story back in Numbers, uh, God at one point that the people of Israel have been saved from Egypt and they're wandering in the desert before they entered the promised land and they're grumbling. God was giving them fresh manna, this bread every day to eat, and it was good. And you could do all kinds of things with it, and it was enough. But people said, I want meat. I miss the steaks, you know, or I miss the, the, the good kind of widespread food that, I, that we used to get in Egypt. We are more protected there. There's people all around us, and so they complain about a whole bunch of things. One of the things they complain about is not having meat, and so what God does is uh, and grumbling's never a good thing, never ends well. You guys know these, some I mean, of you know these stories, <laughs> never ends well for any of us, but for Israel especially in that, in that time period. Uh, but what God does and says, all right, you want quail? He kind of backs his dump truck up and just, and just kind of like dumps it out. He gives so much quail to people that it says it went two to three miles wide and 18 inches deep. There's that much quail among the people of Israel. And it says they gorged themselves with it. And it was still between their teeth when they started to get sick. And a plague came upon them. Many of them died until God let it relent and graciously kind of basically said, see, you didn't need it. You needed me and what I give. You wanted something that was aside from what I have to give, from my all-sufficient, my all-sufficient grace for you. Sometimes he'll do that. And I think in our lives in kind of a micro, micro level, He'll do this too. But in the biblical storyline, we've already seen God do this once. And I think it's fair to say and apply that to the law and say, one of the things God is doing, you want to keep law, you want to be your own God, you want morality. Here's about 600 more to keep perfectly. Have fun storming the castle. And they can't. If you know the story, they, they, I mean, actually, Joshua and Moses both say this to Israel once. When Israel says, We can keep it, they say, You are, you are, testifying against, you your witnesses against yourselves that you think you can keep this law, you won't. It's never meant to be actually because it can't. We're too much full of wretchedness to keep. We have a standard before us that is impossible to keep. The law was never, ever, ever God's plan A. It was added much later to show us our sin and lead us to somewhere else, namely Jesus Christ. And part of the reason again is backing the truck up, dumping out more laws and saying, graciously try, and, and I'll be on the other side when you realize this was wrong of you to ask for. Uh, it, it, was, it, was never in, it was never the way. It was in, in the spirit of Adam and Eve, reaching out for that tree of the knowledge of good and evils and sinking their teeth into it and saying, now I'm like God. I don't need him anymore. But interesting, that morality was the thing, actually. Reaching for that aside from God as though it was sufficient alone is what brought hell and sin and cursedness and death into the world. So what you see then here is the storyline in a nutshell. There's no law in the beginning. Sin enters the world like we talked about. God gives law for a time to point us to Jesus. And after he comes, there's no more law. There's just gospel. In Revelation 19, and the Bible ends with a picture of marriage in a garden city and a supper-like reception without any mention of law whatsoever just jesus his grace in a garden like it began god is actually way more important than law and god has for you himself not things to do himself that's what he wants and oh how often do we forget this how often do you live as though that's not true are you currently living as though that's true did you know this at all the, the, the storyline of the Bible is showing that when we're all about ourselves, when, when our relationship with God is dictated by what we do, failure, failure after failure after failure after failure. The Old Testament ends on the worst note you can possibly imagine with the people of God, Israel, assimilated to different countries, kind of married into them, losing their culture, losing their uh, distinct kind of uh, genealogy and DNA. The northern kingdom, the southern kingdom is brought into Babylon and they're not in the land anymore. God's not there. God's not speaking. It's just the worst, and it's in and it's in the context of law. All this is happening. God speaks into that and says, "I'm coming with a new way. It's different. It's distinct. It's not like the law, the covenant that I made with your fathers in the desert. It's different, based on better, different promises, based on what I'm going to do for you. Can you imagine the hope hearing that after?" Centuries and centuries of centuries of failure, having God whisper into that through the prophets, there's a new way coming. I'm going to do a new thing in the future, distinct from the old. I will not continue this old way, and it's going to be a marked end and a marked beginning of something, an era of salvation that can only be pointed to. It's unprecedented. Only be pointed to by the old, but never never matched. That's the storyline of, of the scriptures, so the the when question really helps. Even just to know that God did not give the moral law at the very beginning, it was even centuries after sin came into the world. It wasn't until about 1400 BC uh, that it all occurred. That says a lot, right? It says it is not the law. And I'll, I'm just next slide here. I'll, I'll read this. Um, the law helps to tell the gospel story. It's not the gospel itself, though. And here's the idea. The law played a role, but it was not the main uh, hero or protagonist or solution. It it testified to him in a wonderfully tragic but beautiful kind of way. The law reminds us of our first parents, who likely, like us, wrongly reached for law instead of God. It reminds us of our sin and need for another type of exodus, one that pertains to the heart and frees us from slavery uh, to and our inability to do sufficient good, and our wickedness, and our slavery to to sin. It contrasts with other grace-centered ways that God moves in the world, based more on his love, not based on a response to our works. It points us to Jesus Christ, the maker of a new covenant, the one true mediator between God and man, the replacer of the law, the lover of our souls, the sacrifice of our atonement, and the one who succeeded where the law failed. And so a few things then here in closing, Uh, I think the encouragement for us, even topically addressing these things, is to live as though this is true. And and here's here's the good news for you today. I have said some good news. Here's some more good news. There is no more do this and you will live covenant between you and God. It is completely and utterly over. Don't live as though that's true. Bible does not teach it. Jesus certainly does not say it. He lives out and speaks something much better than that. There is no more do this and you will live covenant between you and God. That's the old way. The new way says, I have done everything. Just believe and rest. The righteousness that's based on faith, remember, is not do this and you will live. It's confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that he's God, that he loves you and he's died for your sins. No more conditionality, only grace and freedom. So remember then, back in Genesis, that these trees that Adam and Eve were called to eat from, but there's this one they weren't called to eat from. I think there's a question here, and they're a microcosm, again, of the human experience. There's a question of what fruit and tree are you reaching for as a Christian or a non-Christian? Some of you aren't Christians yet here. Uh, think about your life spiritually as you might start to ask these questions and approach Christ. What tree and fruit are you reaching out for? Is it it the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Or is it the other tree? What's the other tree called? You guys remember? Tree of life. The tree of life. And actually, they could eat from any other tree, but there's this tree of life. They are distinct trees like there are distinct covenants in the Bible. There are two. There's always pairings in the Bible. A lot of times, one represents law and people trying harder and one represents God just giving because at the essence of who he is is generosity and, and love. So, What tree are you really reaching for? The the tree of the knowledge of good and evil or the tree of life? Jesus, if you remember, the Bible says died upon a cross which is called a tree at various points in the Bible. He died upon a tree that that might be the ultimate tree of life to reach out for. A second opportunity for humanity to reach again for the only thing that matters which is God, His grace, His love, His sufficiency. Church, that's your law. That's it. Believing Reaching for the fruit of the cross and partaking and resting. That's the only law that there is, there, the, like the, one of the, the, the uh, famous uh, uh, carols, the, the Christmas hymns we sing, O Holy Night, is your law is love and your gospel is peace. Right? That's it. The only thing between you and God is simply uh, coming to the cross. It's only Jesus and believing and partaking of that tree of life. And then the call biblically is to not turn back. Uh, One more passage, Galatians 3, 1 to 5. Paul here is speaking to a church that did turn back. They started their race well by belief, but now they are trying to perfect themselves by what they did, the keeping of Old Testament laws and and other things. And Paul gets extremely angry and frustrated and saddened by this, and he says, oh foolish Galatians, it's foolish to do this. It's foolish to turn away from the cross for the sake of what we can do to add to it. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected in the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain if indeed it was by vain? If he who supply the Spirit to you and work miracles among you, do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith. A lot of contrast there again. But here I think is this uh, not so often called American evangelical heresy that was around 2,000 years ago and it's around in the church today. And that is saved by grace, perfected by what you do. Saved by grace, we're, we're distinctly Christian. But after that, we're saved more by how we act and what we do heresy. And Paul is calling it that. That is not the gospel. And so yeah, I like how he poses it in a question. Think about your life. You started by the Spirit. Why are you trying to continue on as though he doesn't give you good works and, and continue to mediate you to a, as a sinner to a holy God every single day of your life? And I'm telling you guys, some of you don't know this yet because you haven't gotten to the, the end of your rope in this matter. I have. I still wrestle with this and it's something we'll never resolve. I've been there this will be the biggest battle you ever fight as a Christian. You will, if you you don't feel it, that means you're probably in a lot deeper than you realize, uh, because it's there. But the issue is starting by believing God does everything and I do nothing, but continuing by trying to add to that by how you live and thinking there's some good things God said in the Old Testament that I think are still over me. There's a degree of conditionality that I think I have to act a certain way and do a few things to kind of maintain that love over me. It's good, it's more powerful than this, but I think I, I promise you, and some of you are in this, you're nodding, you're saying, yeah, that's it. Uh, for me, it's, it's everything. In fact, where sin comes from for me, and I think for all of us, is not embracing that idea. It's, you know, when, when I think about my relationship with God in terms of law, it actually breeds sin because I give up. I'm like, I can't do this. I can't do this. I can't stop this sin. I can't stop this way of thinking. I'm in way too deep. And, I, and all you think about is do this or don't do this and you will live. You're done. You're done. Done. Toast. Old covenant way of thinking. Move from that over here. Didn't work for Israel, won't work for you. Move away from law to a righteousness that's by faith. In other words, dependency on God. Not just at your conversion, but every single day of your life. And so that you'll do what Jesus does, you'll believe and you'll love. That's it. That, that's our law. And it's, it's interesting, um, as we stare at the cross, and, you know, and again, as we kind of secretly conspire in our hearts to add to the cross, we'll wrestle with that. But as we take that third Jesus way, uh, you know, and Jesus was this, uh, interestingly enough, and actually it should make a lot of sense, but interestingly enough, you'll be hated by pagans and moralists alike. It won't just be people who love the world that will hate you for turning from your sin, but you'll also be scoffed at by moralists for turning from law. They'll condescend you. They will think themselves better than you. And they'll, in their religiousness and, and full of themselvesedness they will laugh and they will hate you. And so it, it'll be actually all from both sides because Jesus is not just the, against the pagan side. He's also against the religious reaching for morality without God's side. That's actually the side that Jesus butts heads more with in his ministry than than the pagan side there is a third way and it's christ and the cross it's not try harder with the help of the spirit it's not a blending of the old and new covenant it's a distinct new system that comes against the dark backdrop of the old to say this is the new system rest believe trust love rejoice and be free and live a simple life in those things that doesn't even really look, in some ways won't look that spiritual to people who are super religious and they'll think, why aren't you doing this? Why aren't you fasting? Why aren't you taking the Sabbath? Why aren't you, go, why aren't you, uh, you know, volunteering more in your community? Why, why aren't you praying before meals? Why aren't you blah, blah, blah? And, you know, and, and in your heart, you're saying, because I'm justified by God's grace alone, because I'm a child of his, I'm married to him. What else should I, what else should I do to add to that? And the irony is you'll be probably more loving in your heart than they are um, in those kind of hateful comments to you because you're loved by God by grace and you're captivated by it, and that's all you need. It's really, it really is all you need for life. And, um, but, but make no mistake, you'll, you'll take it from both sides. But Jesus did, right? And um, as we minister to the world, love the world, the people of the world, and preach the gospel, it will be uncomfortable for both sides and your own heart as you wrestle with those same issues. It won't just be not sinning. It will be not reaching for law uh, as well. So last thing here uh, is use your freedom then not to sin, but to live in light of the grace you've been given. Use it to love. Galatians 5 says, For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, through love, serve one another. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the gospel of Christ, for how it's um, hinted at, woven, at, uh, woven around different laws and prophecies and characters and events of the old testament until we get that clarity distinct clarity at the cross even when you came on the scene at the manger jesus there was still fogginess uh, as in terms of who you were exactly and what the christ who the christ was and what he was going to do differently and it's, it's it's not until we got to the cross that we realized oh that's it right there that's what had to happen to save me because law certainly couldn't do this and it's humbling it's uh, but it's love, it's wrath and justice, but it's mercy and gentleness, kissing perfectly at the cross. It's the genius of God uh, where he's reaching out, demanding that perfection, but getting it through his son and letting us just kind of wade around in the, in the tide or the wake of that amazing grace, God. So uh, protect us, God, from um, turning back like the Galatian church did. We read about that. Turning back away from the spirit to the old way of the written code whatever that might look like. And I pray, Spirit, even right now as I pray, you would prompt people with how that's happening in their heart. And you would compel them to move away from that back to their first love. Or if they're not there yet for the first time, uh, to not think Christianity or the Bible as just a list of laws. It's not. It's a story of God working in spite of our inability to keep his law to give us a new way to, to be alive through Jesus Christ and him crucified and raised. Praise be to God. So, Bless us, Lord, as we respond in communion and song. In Christ's name, amen. All right, guys, uh, for the rest of our time this morning, we'll have a few songs to sing through, and during that time, like Aaron said, um, there will be a um, uh, a time to uh, take communion together, which we do the first Sunday of the month in a more centralized manner here. It's always available to my right, your left, to take as a part of your worship time if you would like, but on the first Sunday, we centralize the table a bit and do this as a church. Christ says to do this. He says, until I come back, we uh, eagerly await his second coming. Until that time, eat bread and take wine together. And as you do that, remember my death. This is, this is why it's so appropriate, especially for today topically, which is the essence of the new covenant. The essence of the New Testament. So no, notice at the, at the uh, if you know this story, at the, at the last supper, hours before Jesus dies on the cross, he does this. He doesn't unscroll the Ten Commandments and say, here's the covenant, you know, try harder, you know, get back to basics, right? There's no law present at the Last Supper, just bread and wine, and Jesus saying, this is a new way of God working over and against the old, it's my body broken, it's my blood shed, in that you have peace, in that you have deliverance, in that you have a new exodus way out of the true Egypt, the only Egypt, really, that can really hurt you and keep you there, which is sin and death, I'm making you a way out from that. My law is love. My gospel is peace. And so when Jesus broke that for his disciples, he was distinctly, he was trying to make a marked new, new things happening here. A few hours from now, I'm going to shed my blood, drink that, remember that I'm, it's pouring out for your transgressions and sins. He died for us there. That's the, new, that's, that's the essence of Christianity, the new covenant. And, uh, and remember his broken body. So uh, just a little word on how we take communion here. Any time during the last worship set of songs, please feel free to come down the center aisle and break off some bread and pour a cup of wine or juice yourself with your family or a friend or yourself, Sit the front pew or back where you... It's a pretty open time of communion and worship, but any time during that. But as, as you do that, we encourage you to distinctly remember what the New Testament is, that it's not, it's not about you doing, it's about Christ doing for you because he loves you so much. And to freshly place your faith back in that... And this is why we need the church, because we forget this stuff all the time. Uh, we, for, we have the tendency to go back to the old way. So we uh, practice open communion here, which means you don't have to be a member of our church to take this, but we ask, as the Bible does, that this is, this is for true Christians, people that have truly believed, in all that we've talked about today, truly believe that Jesus is sufficient, that he's the essence of God's grace. He died on a cross for your sins. You believe in that, that God wrote, raised him from the dead three days later for your justification you believe that, uh, please come down for the first time even today. Come down and take and talk to us about your new faith. We'd love to talk to you about that. We invite you to that. Come to the cross messy. Christ takes care of that for you. Uh, but if it's um, not your first time, please continue to celebrate Jesus with us today through song and, and communion. So invite the band up here and I'll pray and we'll get started. God, thanks again uh, for your grace for the New Testament, which is uh, resembled, symbolized here in this meal. Uh, thank you for the Last Supper. Thank you for Jesus making it clear that your body given, your blood shed was for our sins. Uh, what didn't just happen? You weren't just a martyr in that sense. You were uh, d- divinely planning the events. You you wanted to die. You, but you wrestled with it. You struggled with that uh, in your heart and before God the Father. Jesus, you you were still planning and orchestrating the whole thing for the sake of fulfilling the Old Testament mm-hmm. and, and starting this new way that was predicted. Years, hundreds of years before you even came into the earth. So thank you so much, God, for your grace and love. Help us to celebrate through song and through the taking of this meal here as we finish our time together. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Let's stand as we.